the health of a person and their pet are intertwined. They're connected. It is part of that dynamic and reciprocated relationship. And so addressing pet health issues is addressing the individual's health as well. Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome everybody. At Home on Air is a program produced by At Home with Growing Older. And I am Susie Stadler, an architect and executive director of this organization. In the next three months, our focus of inquiry and conversation is the human-animal bond and its health benefits, especially in later life. Jessica Bibble, our guest, said in our first conversation, it is really my goal in my career to have pet ownership part of planning conversations with older adults. Pets do impact people's lives and also their choices and behaviors for care, housing, and more. Dr. Bibble recently concluded a research study funded by Harbury, the Human Animal Bond Research Institute entitled Uncovering Pet Ownership Benefits, Challenges and Resources in an Aging Society, Promoting Healthy Aging in Healthcare and Community Environments. An amazing title, Jessica. <laughs> so welcome. Thanks so much for joining us from the East Coast and especially after submitting an application for a new grant. My first question for you is your amazing career where you wove together several strands. You had an interest in pet therapy. You liked talking to older adults. And then you figured out how to combine these two interests in your studies and work. Can you please tell us a little bit how this all happened and how this feels now? I'd be happy to. And first, I want to thank you for having me. The work you do is also amazing and very important. It's great to be here and talking to you and everyone. What's nice is that now it sounds like there was some kind of plan and that it all made sense at the time, but it really, it wasn't that easy. I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I was a young adult. I went back to school because I was interested in pet therapy and what I would now call animal-assisted interventions. I reached out to then the real leading organization at the time, the Delta Society, now Pet Partners. And it sent me on this journey of going back to school. That got me interested in research. And that's how I also became aware of the field of gerontology. I enjoy interacting and spending time with older people, realizing there's also a field of study was something that was new to me. To condense the story, I shifted from wanting to be a practitioner to wanting to do research because I saw that there was really not as much research in the field and there was a real need for it. 
over time, I came to focus on the impact mainly because animal assisted interventions or pet therapy is not something that most people interact with in daily life, but pets are part of daily life and pets are part of the lives of the majority of Americans now. It seems that that would be more important to investigate and to understand and to appreciate but something that occurs in specific and even controlled settings. With my focus from gerontology, I found my dad being a caregiver. His parents did not have any pets, but thinking about the work that could be involved in caring for someone who had the pet. People rely on other individuals for their daily needs. The chances are very good that they would need assistance also in caring for the pets that are part of their life. And so that's the focus of my dissertation and really has become the focus of my career. I'm also very appreciative and fortunate that I've been able to make it a career because I realize it's something that is really specific. It's not in any kind of job description. I really had to make it kind of my own. I was very fortunate in finding the Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging here in Cleveland because they do applied aging research and they are interested in people's everyday lives and very different aspects of our organization. I'm in the Center for Research and Education. It's been around since the 1960s. And work that was done here with the most work that's very influential in having individuals living with dementia, their voices be heard and be a part of conversations in terms of planning. We also have senior centers in the Cleveland area run a home delivered meals program. We have a subsidiary that works on financial empowerment of adults. It's a really tremendous opportunity for someone who's interested in really understanding the everyday lives of older adults and being able to create programs that can also support people and pets as they age. Thank you, Jessica. What seems really fantastic, I mentioned in Rose, is their focus is on the everyday life of older adults. And of course, animals are part of the everyday life. This also leads me to my next question, the nature of the relationships we have with pets, the various types of relationships. So the American Veterinary Society has a definition of the human-animal bond. And it says, the human-animal bond is a mutually beneficial and dynamic relationship between people and animals that is influenced by behaviors essential to the health and well-being of both. I'm curious how you interpret this. And if you think we are already there in this mutuality, or if something still has to shift in order to reach this rather aspirational definition of this relationship? I sincerely believe that the relationship with an animal is about successful communication, which is true of any relationship, right? And I think in terms of the aspirational aspect, I've never fully understood why there's a question if other creatures experience emotions, even in a kind of biological sense, that other mammals at least would have emotions. They're also social creatures, and we live in groups. It seems that, at a minimum, is something that we experience. And so I feel that the human-animal bond really is about successful degrees of communication between a person 
and another type of animal. But the bond part is also about that establishment of a real relationship that is dynamic and it changes. Mm -hmm. One of the issues I have sometimes with this field is the use of the term unconditional love, mm -hmm. because I feel that that's a misnomer and it discredits the relationship that is built. The bonds we have with animals are built. They're not something we should expect. In that way, I feel like that's a false aspiration that people may have about pets that they automatically love us. I think that pets are non-judgmental in ways that people are judgmental to other people. But in terms of our own actions, that's what other animals judge us on and we need to be responsible for. I like the AVMA's definition because it really does provide the fact that it is something that is built, it's reciprocated, and that it changes over time. If we think about our relationships with other people, we don't expect them to always be perfect. We know that the people we're closest to, we have a wide range of emotions with. And that's also part of what is a rich relationship. Coming to a point where we can appreciate and be comfortable with the fact that we will have a range of emotions with our pets is also very healthy. Yes, thank you. I mean, this dynamicism in the relationship I think it's not always easy to accept because it's much less hierarchically than we're sort of used to. No? I very much agree with that. You know, you can use the term human exceptionalism. And I think for some things, yes, we do things that are amazing, but every creature has developed to be amazing in some way that we probably don't fully understand yet. You know, this mutuality in the relationship, of course, continues for older age pet owners. And your aspiration is to continue this relationship as part of the caregiving of older adults. And I wonder also what you found out, if you can say a little bit, what results your study brought in this respect, what you learned from your study. Yeah, so the concept of healthy aging isn't just about our physical well-being. It's also about being able to enact our values and preferences as we continue to go through our lives. And for many people, sharing a life with a pet is part of that. And so when conversations are had about what people would like in their futures, pets should be a part of that conversation. The study I just finished was with professionals working with older adults. These were individuals who worked in healthcare. There were home aides, people in hospice, social workers, even adult protective services were included. And I really wanted to know the good and the bad that they had seen in their careers, working with older adults, people living with dementia and caregiving. The summary is that pets are fantastic companions and they can be so important to people, but they also require a lot of work and basic care, the basic everyday pet care tasks were overwhelmingly the largest issue people had encountered. There also had been issues of conflict with, you know, a family or friend caregiver who maybe for whatever reason didn't want to help with 
the pet, there were a couple anecdotes of even caregivers relinquishing a pet to a shelter without consulting or talking to the older adult, and that leading to some, not just some conflict, I'm sure a lot of conflict, and also having real psychological and emotional repercussions. It's like with really any planning, having those conversations ahead of time eases the process. For the caregiver, it can remove doubt in what to do because you know what a person's choices are, maybe when they are no longer able to communicate them. So having pets be part of caregiving planning conversations, but also services and programs that serve caregivers to have them ask about is the person you're providing care for, is that individual pet owner? And if so, here are some things that you may want to talk about or be aware of. And also the fact that I see as a practitioner that you're likely doing more work because of this point. And that the time you spend and the activities you do may increase simply because there's a pet in the home. Yeah, that's a really important part to encourage the caregiver not to ignore this, but to have this an active part of the conversation. And early on planning, I wonder if your doctor should know if you have a pet or not. Yeah, and I think they should. There's strong evidence that asking about pet ownership is a very effective way to build rapport with people, especially in a healthcare setting. Because by doing so, you're communicating that you really care about that person and their life. But also because there's a lot of evidence showing that pets can be a motivator for health behaviors and choices. And if people could adopt those kinds of things, I feel that it's really an untapped resource. We know that having to walk a dog is beneficial to people's physical health. Having to get up and do basic pet care tasks is also a way to build structure in a day, to remember things, to even get moving. That can be something that's really incorporated into healthcare conversations. As a quick follow-up question, did you interview caregivers or survey caregivers? And what was the practice you discovered they had with old adults who had pets? Or what was their attitude towards that? So not in this last study, a previous study, I did survey caregivers for an older adult. In my sample, I ensured that they themselves did not consider themselves to be a co-owner of the pet because then their relationship with the pet would have already been established. I wanted to see whether this pet that is not normally part of your life and now is how that impacted people. And what I found was that the relationship between the two people is what really created an impact on how the pet shaped the caregiving experience. So people who had more positive relationships with the person they were providing care for, they did not experience an increase in burden in the way that people who did not have that relationship did when they were providing a high level of care for the pet. So there seemed to be some kind of proxy in the relationship between the two people that was playing out with the caregiver's relationship to the pet. Another thing that is interesting is it can also lead to satisfaction in the role. Something I would like to look into more is the fact that pet care tasks are something that are very familiar to most people and can present a way for people who may not be 
active part of care teams, even the younger people, grandchildren, it's an opportunity for them to also help an older adult in their life by going over and walking the dog. That's a way to interact with a grandparent or whomever that is in their life. That can also then take a little bit off of that primary caregiver. Again, I feel that it's really an untapped opportunity that could be woven into how we think about caregiving. Yes, but it seems like it would be helpful to really think this through, the different opportunities and challenges here. As you said before, at certain times, pet ownership or the tasks of pet ownership can become a burden. And there are, of course, you know, other ways to foster human-animal relationships such as shared pets and foster pets, etc. Did this factor into your study at all? Not very much, but I feel like it's a very important future way of continuing the human-animal bond throughout our lifetimes. I have a colleague, Anne Tui, who's in Canada, and she's very interested in studying this idea of shared pets. I know that there are organizations that manage senior adults with senior animals, which I also think is fantastic. Also, you know, fostering an animal is a great way of having a pet without having to have that financial burden of pet ownership. And something that did come up in the study a great deal was the financial burden of pet ownership especially, you know, for people on fixed income, for people who may have transportation issues, getting their pets to the vet can be difficult. In foster situations, those burdens are lessened a great deal. It's a fantastic opportunity and something that needs to be looked at. Yes, and there are efforts around. Matville is one organization which has a great program here in San Francisco, but it's still too little. How would a world or a city look like if it was acknowledged that everybody should have access to an animal? How could we foster different types of human-animal bond? Maybe like libraries, there would be pet cafes or something like this. There's so many interesting ideas. Yeah. So what's nice about being in this field that we like to call anthrozoology, so the study of human-animal interaction, is like gerontology huge breadth of people, right? You have psychologists and nurses, people from public health and all walks of life and thinking that can, you know, hopefully work together and generate these exciting ideas. Yes, that would be a great vision. I was wondering if this kind of conversation would have happened 40 years ago. You know, pet ownership has increased dramatically and I feel like our relationship with pets has also changed over the years. And I wonder if people now acknowledge more the benefits of this human-animal bond or if it's just more out in the open. What has shifted? That is a very big question. As you were talking, you know, I do remember a couple of years ago seeing bereavement cards for pets at like a card shop. And it made me really happy to see that that was being acknowledged. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. It's research. And this sounds goofy coming from a researcher, but it's astounding to me that 
for some things, we do need to have empirical evidence before we think that it's important. The human-animal bond is one of those things that I study. It exists to my earlier rant about the idea that other creatures can have emotions and all those things, that we need to have scientific evidence before we think that's a possibility. But all that said, there is something about building the empirical evidence that pets can have a real impact on our physical health. And I think that it was really when studies came out saying that there could be an impact on the physical that people paid attention more so than our emotions and our day-to-day happiness, joy, anything like that. Once there was evidence that it could help our blood pressure, our cardiac health, that's, I think, when a real shift occurred. But also how we communicate and how we think of animals has changed as we've gone from, you know, agricultural kind of society and moved into cities and there's less interaction with the natural world, having an opportunity to engage with something that is not human can also be, I don't know, necessarily call it a nice break, but in some ways a nice change and different way to engage with the world around us. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's a break from the awful stressful, you know, day to day interaction with fellow humans. <laughs> so <laughs> You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Michelle Wallace says, In COVID, we came to depend on our pets for a very intimate relationship as we both navigated the rhythm of our days. They felt devoid of companionship. How do you see the pet-human relationship enriching life as both pet and human age and lose capabilities? So, Michelle, to get to the first part, I live alone and I spent the pandemic in my apartment with my cat. It was different because I normally leave the house and then come home. I think we both at first were like, why are you here all the time? The second point of your question, that's something that can be very, very difficult because as there's a change in one's ability to provide care for a pet, it also highlights how your abilities are changing. That also occurs with our pets. And then we have that feeling of our time together is changing and diminishing. It can be very difficult, but I also think that having previous pet ownership throughout our lives can give us an insight into the aging process, what it is and what it can be, which is something that's unique. The issues that you're raising, you're easy. It can be difficult, but perhaps it can give us an insight on when to ask for help and when it's okay to ask for help because we would help our pet without question, right? So perhaps we should also be able to ask for help when we need it and be able to accept it. It's a beautiful, very true thought, Jessica. What we can learn from our Aging dogs is actually the topic of the next conversation with the biogerontologist Daniel Promislav from the University of Washington. He leads the Aging Dog Project. So that's exactly about this. 
Rachel says, are you aware of research that says older adults are less allergic to animals or that we have lower histamine responses as we age? I'm thinking how nice it would be to have more pets in assisted living facilities. I am not. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that I'm not aware of that. There's evidence that growing up with pets can inhibit developing allergies, but I don't know if it changes later in life. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And also the thought that if you start having a pet early in life, maybe this can be easier on your body and your reactions as you get older too. How can we get more pets connected to older humans? I would say from my experience, it's if the places that house older adults allowed more pets regularly or even general apartment buildings where people have to you know, give up their pet because of housing issues. And it's true, you know, figuring out how to make pet ownership a standard part of housing and also assisted living residences would be an amazing thing because it's a very dramatic occurrence when you have to give up a companion. And Angela also said that she's getting many surrenders from senior humans who have to move to nursing homes and assisted living. That is a topic I would really like to investigate, that process and the impact that it can have on an older person and that transition, because the transition from living in one's home to another kind of place is just inherently a difficult transition. And there's a lot of issues to confront in that transition. So to be able to continue any kind of relationship be it with a pet or friends or people in the neighborhood, is really important to the success of that transition. And so if we can make it easier by allowing people to continue that relationship, it's so important. One of the reasons I find it very important to uncover some of the difficulties surrounding pet ownership is because then they can be addressed. If we address those issues, it makes it easier to create housing and assisted living and long-term care facilities that accommodate pet ownership. But until we address issues, we're not going to be able to make that happen. There's just going to be this barrier. So by addressing that, you really are taking down those barriers. Yes, that's a great and important point. In this vein, one of the barriers is our finances. I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday who told me that there is health insurance which offers Medicare Advantage plans which integrate vet care into the Medicare Advantage plan, which is pretty cool. I think this makes a lot of sense. It does, because that is also something that came up repeatedly and very clearly in the results of this recent study, the health of a person and their pet are intertwined. They're connected. It is part of that dynamic and reciprocated relationship. And so addressing pet health issues is addressing the individual's health as well. One of the things that's very exciting is the growing acknowledgement from the Meals on Wheels organization that Providing pet food is also, in a sense, providing people food because there's established evidence that people will forgo their own meal or like take part of it at least and give it to their animal 
the home-delivered meals, most of them are designed very specifically to provide certain nutrients to people. And so when people then share their food with their animal, they're not getting those nutrients that they need too. By helping provide people who rely on home-delivered meals, pet food, you're also ensuring that they consume the food that they need to consume. So it is really important to address both. Yes, hopefully there will be a shift. I mean, it's starting to happen. Rachel asks or says, I would like a family therapist to research what pets enhance family bonding, bring fun and connection to a home and enhance family cohesion and shared meaning. I think having a pet should be considered a therapeutic intervention. <laughs> That's really interesting. When I was in grad school, my head was immersed in different family systems theories and all that kind of stuff. I had very similar thoughts. A pet will also change the dynamics and how people relate to each other. A study I was a part of how a service dog impacted a family member particularly parents were the largest proportion of the sample. It was interesting how a service dog, especially for a parent, it lessened the worry about the child with the disability or the reason for having a service animal, but it also increased some of the work that they did. And there's also some evidence, particularly in veterans for spousal situations where there's a spouse with a service dog, that if it comes into the relationship, it can impact how a spouse is feeling about how they're needed in their loved one's life. And so, yeah, a pet, a service dog absolutely changes the dynamic of a household. Again, to your point of being something that can be utilized in a therapeutic setting, I completely agree with that. Yes, and in therapy with older adults. Yeah, pets can be such an important way to build rapport and start some uncomfortable conversations. Yes. So Michelle asks, what one or two success factors have you identified in predicting how well a caregiver will coexist with pets of the folks they help? Is pet ownership a big factor? You know, I don't know. I have never done a study, and I don't know of one, that looked at pet ownership being just a standalone factor in comparing people who are caring for someone who owns a pet compared to people who are not caring for someone who owns a pet. I don't think that's been done, but it's a really good question. In terms of factors that have to do with the caregiver being able to take on and being okay with taking on those responsibilities, it seems to come down to that relationship with the older person. And if the relationship with the older person tends to be positive, there's a healthy dynamic between the two people. It seems to be fairly easy to take on those responsibilities. That's sort of the driver for the success is this human-human relationship. Human-human relationship, for sure. There are also a couple of great stories for everybody to enjoy. Pat says that more and more shelters for homeless folks are providing pet food and pet litter for people in need. That's also a really important shift in caregiving. And in general, we pet owners are very confident that everybody else loves pets too. <laughs> and that's not always true. 
so my question is, has this come up in your study? It did. One of the things that came up were people, especially those who worked in the homes of older adults, people who were uncomfortable with pets or had allergies to pets, not wanting to enter homes of pet owners and that being really a barrier to providing care. You know, I think that that is something that needs to be respected and also addressed. We wouldn't force anyone with any other allergy to encounter it. And I think that that's something that's really important and does need to be acknowledged. Yes. So that's something which has to be built into a conversation with a caregiver or a home care agency. I'm also wondering if there could be human-animal relationship classes, which would help people who did not grow up with pets, who maybe come from a very different understanding of pet ownership, maybe get another insight or an opportunity to think about this relationship in a different way. Since you said that, I thought we have those and they're called trainers. When people take their dog to have obedience training, it really is person training. For it to be successful, the person needs to be able to learn to successfully communicate to their animal. So as someone who lives with cats, I've had many people say to me they just do not like cats. And it becomes clear they don't understand how cats talk or communicate. And once you're able to bridge that gap, then it's like this world opens up and they all of a sudden love cats. So I think that we could foster the bond by just educating people how to successfully communicate to other creatures. Yes, it's a wonderful comment to end this conversation on successfully communicate with other creatures. I think that's beautiful, Jessica. Thank you so much for this conversation and for your work and research. The grant you just applied for is for a very different Field. Are you going to come back to the human-animal bond in the near future? It seems like that's where your passion is. Yeah, I hope so. This is my favorite. And actually, I am planning on writing a grant this summer to create a project at Benjamin Rose to provide basic pet care services for older adults in the Cleveland area. It's fantastic. <laughs> you have to let us know when this happens, because I think part of it is also learning from each other and what others do and spreading this to other communities so we don't have to reinvent the wheel somewhere else. A successful example in one community can spur more in others. So let us know. That's exactly what researchers do in citing everybody else. You know, we say this worked for them, so hopefully it'll work for us. So I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you again, Jessica. It was a really lovely conversation. It was great. Thank you so much for reaching out. So thanks again, everybody, and cuddle with your animal companions. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, 
the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.